Chapter Three, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Southward, Chapter Three, Part One. Open the bones, and you shall nothing find in the best face but filth. When, Lord, in thee the beauty lies in the discovery. George Herbert. Telegrams from all parts of the world, special trains, all ships dressed, crowds and waving hands, steamers out to the heads, and a general hullabaloo. These were the incidents of Saturday, November 26, 1910, when we slipped from the wharf at Littleton at 3 p.m. We were to call at Dunedin before leaving civilization, and arrived there on Sunday night. Here we took on the remainder of our coal. On Monday night we danced in fantastic clothing, for we had left our grand clothes behind, and sailed finally for the south the following afternoon amidst the greatest enthusiasm. The wives remained with us until we reached the open sea. Amongst those who only left us at the last minute was Mr. Kinsey of Christchurch. He acted for Scott in New Zealand during the Discovery Days, and for Shackleton in 1907. We all owe him a deep debt of gratitude for his help. His interest in the expedition is wonderful, and such interest on the part of a thoroughly shrewd businessman is an asset of which I have taken full advantage. Kinsey will act as my agent in Christchurch during my absence. I have given him an ordinary power of attorney, and I think have left him in possession of all the facts. His kindness to us was beyond words. The ponies and dogs were the first consideration. Even in quite ordinary weather the dogs had a wretched time. The seas continually break on the weather bullocks, and scatter clouds of heavy spray over the backs of all who must venture into the waist of the ship. The dogs sit with their tails to this invading water, their coats wet and dripping. It is a pathetic attitude, deeply significant of cold and misery. Occasionally some poor beast emits a long pathetic whine. The group forms a picture of wretched dejection. Such a life is truly hard for these poor creatures. The ponies were better off. Four of them were on deck, amidships, and they were well boarded round. It is significant that these ponies had a much easier time in rough weather than those in the bows of the ship. Under the forecastle, fifteen ponies, close side by side, seven one side, eight the other, heads together, and groom between, swaying, swaying continually to the plunging, irregular motion. One takes a look through a hole in the bulkhead and sees a row of heads with sad, patient eyes come swinging up together from the starboard side, whilst those on the port swing back, then up come the port heads, while the starboard recede. It seems a terrible ordeal for these poor beasts to stand this day after day for weeks together, and indeed, though they continue to feed well, the strain quickly drags down their weight and condition, but nevertheless the trial cannot be gauged from human standards. The seas through which we had to pass to reach the pack ice must be the most stormy in the world. Dante tells us that those who have committed carnal sin are tossed about ceaselessly by the most furious winds in the second circle of hell. The corresponding hell on earth is found in the southern oceans, which encircle the world without a break, tempest-tossed by the gales which follow one another round and round the world from west to east. You will find albatross here, great wanderers and sooties and mollymorks, sailing as lightly before these furious winds as ever do Paolo and Francesca. Round the world they go. I doubt whether they land more than once a year, 
and then they come to the islands of these seas to breed. There are many other beautiful seabirds, but the most beautiful of all are the snowy petrels which approach nearer to the fairies than anything else on earth. They are quite white and seemingly transparent. They are the familiar spirits of the pack, which, except to nest, they seldom if ever leave, flying here and there independently in a mazy fashion, glittering against the blue sky like so many white moths or shining snowflakes. And then there are the giant petrels, whose coloration is a puzzle. Some are nearly white, others brown, and they exhibit every variation between the one and the other. And on the whole, the white forms become more general the further south you go. But the usual theory of protective coloration will not fit in, for there are no enemies against which this bird must protect itself. Is it something to do with radiation of heat from the body? A ship which sets out upon this journey generally has a bad time, and for this reason the overladen state of the Terra Nova was a cause of anxiety. The Australasian meteorologists had done their best to forecast the weather we must expect. Everything which was not absolutely necessary had been ruthlessly scrapped. Yet there was not a square inch of the hold and between decks which was not crammed almost to bursting, and there was as much on the decks as could be expected to stay there. Officers and men could hardly move in their living quarters when standing up, and certainly they could not all sit down. To say that we were heavy laden is a very moderate statement of the facts. Thursday, December 1st, we ran into a gale. We shortened sail in the afternoon to lower topsails, jib and staysail. Both wind and sea rose with great rapidity, and before the night came our deck cargo had begun to work loose. You know how carefully everything has been lashed, but no lashings could have withstood the onslaught of these coal sacks for long. There was nothing for it but to grapple with the evil, and nearly all hands were labouring for hours in the waist of the ship, heaving coal sacks overboard, and relashing the petrol cases, etc., in the best manner possible under such difficult and dangerous circumstances. The seas were continually breaking over these people, and now and again they would be completely submerged. At such times they had to cling for dear life to some fixture, to prevent themselves being washed overboard, and with coal-bags and loose cases washing about, there was every risk of such hold being torn away. No sooner was some semblance of order restored than some exceptionally heavy wave would tear away the lashing, and the work had to be done all over again. The conditions became much worse during the night, and things were complicated for some of us by seasickness. I have lively recollections of being aloft for two hours in the morning watch on Friday, and being sick at intervals all the time. For sheer downright misery, give me a hurricane, not too warm, the yard of a sailing-ship, a wet sail, and a bout of seasickness. It must have been about this time that orders were given to clue up the jib, and then to furl it. Bowers and four others went out on the bowsprit, being buried deep in the enormous seas every time the ship plunged her nose into them with great force. It was an education to see him lead those men out into that roaring inferno. He has left his own vivid impression of this gale in a letter home. His tendency was always to underestimate difficulties, whether the force of wind in a blizzard or the troubles of a polar traveller. This should be remembered when reading the vivid accounts which his mother has so kindly given me permission to use. We got through the forties with splendid speed, and were just over the fifties when one of those tremendous gales got us. Our latitude was about fifty-two degrees south, a part of the world absolutely unfrequented by shipping of any sort, and as we had already been blown off Campbell Island, 
we had nothing but a clear sweep to Cape Horn to leeward. One realised then how in the Nimrod, in spite of the weather, they always had the security of a big steamer to look to if things came to the worst. We were indeed alone by many hundreds of miles, and never having felt anxious about the ship before, the old whaler was to give me a new experience. In the afternoon of the beginning of the gale, I helped make fast the TG sails, upper topsails and foresail, and was horrified on arrival on deck to find that the heavy water we continued to ship was starting the coal-bags floating in places. These, acting as battering rams, tore adrift some of my carefully stowed petrol-cases, and endangered the lot. I had started to make sail fast at 3 p.m., and it was 9.30 p.m. when I had finished putting on additional lashings to everything I could. So rapidly did the sea get up, that one was continually afloat and swimming about. I turned in for two hours, and lay awake hearing the crash of the seas, and thinking how long those cases would stand it, till my watch came at midnight as a relief. We were under two lower topsails, and hove to, the engines going dead slow to assist keeping head to wind. At another time I should have been easy in my mind. Now the water that came aboard was simply fearful, and the wrenching on the old ship was enough to worry any sailor called upon to fill his decks with garbage fore and aft. Still, risk nothing and do nothing. If funds could not supply another ship, we simply had to overload the one we had, or suffer worse things down south. The watch was eventful, as the shaking up got the fine coal into the bilges, and this mixing with the oil from the engines formed balls of coal and grease, which ordinarily went up the pumps easily. Now, however, with great strains and hundreds of tons on deck, as she continually filled, the water started to come in too fast for the half-clogged pumps to cope with. An alternative was offered to me in going faster so as to shake up the big pump on the main engines, and this I did, in spite of myself, and in defiance of the first principles of seamanship. Of course we shipped water more and more, and only to save a clean breach of the decks did I slow down again, and let the water gain. My next card was to get the watch on the hand-pumps as well, and these were choked too, or nearly so. Anyhow, with every pump, hand and steam, going, the water continued to rise in the stokehold. At 4 a.m. all hands took in the fore lower topsail, leaving us under a minimum of sail. The gale increased to storm force, force 11 out of 12, and such a sea got up only as the southern fifties can produce. All the afterguard turned out, and the pumps were vigorously shaken up. Sickening work, as only a dribble came out. We had to throw some coal overboard to clear the after-deck round the pumps, and I set to work to rescue cases of petrol which were smashed adrift. I broke away a plank or two of the lee bullocks to give the sea some outlet, as they were right over the level of the rail, and one was constantly on the verge of floating clean over the side with the cataract force of the backwash. I had all the swimming I wanted that day. Every case I rescued was put on the weather side of the poop to help get us on a more even keel. She sagged horribly, and the unfortunate ponies, though under cover, were so jerked about that the weather ones could not keep their feet in their stalls, so great was the slope and strain on their forelegs. Oates and Atkinson worked among them like Trojans, but morning saw the death of one, and the loss of one dog overboard. The dogs, made fast on deck, were washed to and fro, chained by the neck, and often submerged for a considerable time. Though we did everything in our power to get them up as high as possible, the sea went everywhere. 
The wardroom was a swamp, and so were our bunks, with all our nice clothing, books, etc. However, of this we cared little, when the water had crept up to the furnaces and put the fires out, and we realised for the first time that the ship had met a match and was slowly filling. Without a pump to suck, we started the forlorn hope of buckets, and began to bail her out. Had we been able to open a hatch, we could have cleared the main pump well at once, but with those appalling seas literally covering her, it would have meant less than ten minutes to float had we uncovered a hatch. The chief engineer, Williams, and carpenter, Davies, after we had all put our heads together, started cutting a hole in the engine-room bulkhead to enable us to get into the pump-well from the engine-room. It was iron, and therefore at least a twelve-hours job. Captain Scott was simply splendid. He might have been at Cowes, and to do him and Teddy Evans credit, at our worst strait, none of our landsmen, who were working so hard, knew how serious things were. Captain Scott said to me quietly, "'I am afraid it's a bad business for us, what do you think?' I said we were by no means dead yet, though at that moment Oates, at peril of his life, got aft to report another horse dead and more down, and then an awful sea swept away our lee bollocks clean, between the fore and main riggings, only our chain lashings saved the lee motor sledge then, and I was soon diving after petrol cases. Captain Scott calmly told me that they did not matter. This was our great project for getting to the pole the much-advertised motors that did not matter. Our dogs looked finished, the horses were finishing, and I went to bail with a strenuous prayer in my heart, and yip i addy on my lips. And so we pulled through that day. We sang and re-sang every silly song we ever knew, and then everybody in the ship later on was put on two-hour reliefs to bail, as it was impossible for flesh to keep heart with no food or rest. Even the fresh water pump had gone wrong, so we drank neat lime-juice or anything that came along, and sat in our saturated state awaiting our next spell. My dressing-gown was my great comfort, as it was not very wet, and it is a lovely warm thing. To make a long yarn short, we found later in the day that the storm was easing a bit, and that, though there was a terrible lot of water in the ship, which, try as we could, we could not reduce, it certainly had ceased to rise to any great extent. We had reason to hope, then, that we might keep her afloat till the pump-wells could be cleared. Had the storm lasted another day, God knows what our state would have been, if we had been above water at all. You cannot imagine how utterly helpless we felt in such a sea with a tiny ship, the great expedition, with all its hopes, thrown aside for its life. God had showed us the weakness of man's hand, and it was enough for the best of us. The people who had been made such a lot of lately— the whole scene was one of pathos, really. However, at eleven p.m. Evans and I, with the carpenter, were able to crawl through a tiny hole in the bulkhead, burrow over the coal to the pump-well coffer-dam, where another hole, having been easily made in the wood, we got down below with davy-lamps and set to work. The water was so deep that you had to continually dive to get your hand on to the suction. After two hours or so it was cleared for the time being, and the pumps worked merrily, I went in again at 4.30 a.m. and had another lap at clearing it. Not till the afternoon of the following that day, though, did we see the last of the water and the last of the great gale. During the time the pumps were working we continued the bailing till the water got below the furnaces. As soon as we could light them up we did, and got the other pumps under way, and once the ship was empty, clearing away the suction was a simple matter. I was pleased to find that, after all, I had only lost about a hundred gallons of the petrol 
and bad as things had been, they might have been worse. You will ask where all the water came from, seeing our forward leak had been stopped. Thank God we did not have that to cope with as well. The water came chiefly through the deck where the tremendous strain, not only of the deck-load but of the smashing sea, was beyond conception. She was caught at a tremendous disadvantage, and we were dependent for our lives on each plank standing its own strain. Had one gone, we would all have gone, and the great anxiety was not so much the existing water as what was going to open up if the storm continued. We might have dumped the deck cargo, a difficult job at best, but were too busy bailing to do anything else. That Captain Scott's account will be moderate, you may be sure. Still, take my word for it, he is one of the best, and behaved up to our best traditions at a time when his own outlook must have been the blackness of darkness. Characteristically, Bowers ends his account, Under its worst conditions, this earth is a good place to live in. Priestley wrote in his diary, If Dante had seen our ship, as she was at her worst, I fancy he would have got a good idea for another circle of hell, though he would have been at a loss to account for such a cheerful and ribald lot of souls. The situation narrowed down to a fight between the incoming water and the men who were trying to keep it in check by bailing her out. The Terra Nova will never be more full of water, nearly up to the furnaces, than she was that Friday morning, when we were told to go and do our damnedest with three iron buckets. The constructors had not allowed for bailing, only for the passage of one man at a time up and down the two iron ladders, which connected the engine-room floor-plates with the deck. If we use more than three buckets, the business of passing them rapidly up, emptying them out of the hatchway, and returning them empty, became unprofitable. We were divided into two gangs, and all Friday and Friday night we worked two hours on and two hours off, like fiends. Wilson's journal describes the scene. It was a weird night's work, with the howling gale, and the darkness, and the immense seas running over the ship every few minutes, and no engines and no sail, and we were all in the engine-room oil and bilge-water, singing shanties as we passed up slopping buckets full of bilge, each man above slopping a little over the heads of all below him, wet through to the skin, so much so that some of the party worked altogether naked like Chinese coolies, and the rush of the wave backwards and forwards at the bottom grew hourly less in the dim light of a couple of engine-room oil-lamps, whose light just made the darkness visible, the ship all the time rolling like a sodden lifeless log, her lee gunwale under water every time. There was one thrilling moment in the midst of the worst hour on Friday, when we were realising that the fires must be drawn, and when every pump had failed to act, and when the bullocks began to go to pieces, and the petrol-cases were all afloat and going overboard, and the word was suddenly passed in a shout from the hands at work in the waist of the ship, trying to save the petrol-cases, that smoke was coming up through the seams in the afterhold. As this was full of coal, and patent fuel, and was next to the engine-room, and as it had not been opened for the airing it required to get rid of gas, on account of the flood of water on deck making it impossible to open the hatchway, the possibility of a fire there was patent to every one, and it could not possibly have been dealt with in any way short of opening the hatches and flooding the ship, when she must have foundered. It was therefore a thrilling moment or two until it was discovered that the smoke was really steam, arising from the bilge at the bottom having risen to the heated coal. Meanwhile men were working for all our lives to cut through the two bulkheads which cut off all communication with the suction of the hand-pumps. One bulkhead was iron, the other wood. Scott wrote at this time, we are not out of wood, but hope dawns, as indeed it should for me, when I find myself so wonderfully served. 
Officers and men are singing shanties over their arduous work. Williams is working in sweltering heat behind the boiler to get the door made in the bulkhead. Not a single one has lost his good spirits. A dog was drowned last night. One pony is dead, and two others in a bad condition. Probably they too will go. Occasionally a heavy sea would bear one of them away, and he was only saved by his chain. Mears, with some helpers, had constantly to be rescuing these wretched creatures from hanging, and trying to find them better shelter, an almost hopeless task. One poor beast was found hanging when dead. One was washed away with such force that his chain broke, and he disappeared overboard. The next wave miraculously washed him on board again, and he is fit and well. I believe the dog was Osman. The gale has exacted a heavy toll, but I feel all will be well if we can only cope with the water. Another dog has just been washed overboard, alas! Thank God the gale is abating. The sea is still mountainously high, but the ship is not labouring so heavily as she was. The highest waves of which I can find any record were thirty-six feet high. These were observed by Sir James C. Ross in the North Atlantic. On December the 2nd the waves were logged, probably by Pennell, who was extremely careful in his measurements, as being thirty-five feet high, estimated. At one time I saw Scott standing on the weather-rail of the poop buried up to his waist in green sea. The reader can then imagine the condition of things in the waist of the ship. Over and over again the rail from the fore-rigging to the main was covered by a solid sheet of curling water which swept aft and high in the poop. At another time Bowers and Campbell were standing upon the bridge, and the ship rolled sluggishly over until the lee combings of the main hatch were under the sea. They watched anxiously, and slowly she righted herself. "'But she won't do that often,' said Bowers. "'As a rule, if a ship gets that far over, she goes down.'" End of chapter 3, part 1